you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 110. The text is also printed in the bulletin. <clears throat> Psm 110, we're uh, uh, I don't know, a little over two-thirds of a way through a series on the Psalms. Psalm 110 has always been a very important psalm to God's people. Ever since David wrote it, like 3,000 years ago, he wrote it as a prophetic psalm. That is something that was actually uh, pointing to the future from, from David. He wrote it as a prophetic psalm, speaking of the promised Messiah, speaking of the anointed one. Uh, that's what that word Messiah means, anointed one. That's what the word Christ translates from Hebrew into Greek. Um, he, so David was speaking of this, this promised Christ, the future king future to him, future king and the one who would be priest forever. He would be utterly unique, this Messiah, this Christ. And he would be so important. He'd be the great hope of God's people. He'd be our main man. And there'd even be hints uh, in this psalm that he'd be more than a man. Um, And by Jesus' day, this was one of the main passages in Scripture where uh, where God's people got their ideas for who Christ would be to them. Who this, this coming king would be to them. Um, the apostles who had followed Jesus through his ministry, they'd heard his teachings, uh, they'd, they'd witnessed his miracles, they'd witnessed his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. They preached and taught from Psalm 110 that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. It's the chapter, the chapter in the Old Testament that is actually most frequently cited uh, or quoted from or alluded to in the New Testament, in all the New Testament. Uh, so as the writers of the New Testament look to help us understand the significance of who Jesus is and the good news about him, they often used Psalm 110 to do so. So this psalm, it revealed a thousand years in advance from David's vantage point. Uh, it revealed who Jesus would be, and it touches on some of the most wonderful things that you need to know about Jesus, uh, what God wants you to know about Jesus. So we're going to talk about it. Let's, uh, let's pray, then we'll read Psalm 110. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would do that uh, work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit as we consider your word this morning, right now, that you would open our hearts to you, that you would transform our minds, that you would change all of our lives as we consider this psalm and what it says to us about Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus had um, unusual stories circulating about him, uh, stories about how he 
teaches with wisdom and with authority that uh, no one ever spoke like this man. Uh, so he, he speaks like no one else does. Uh, stories about how he conquers demons. He conquers demons. And he casts them out of people that they're plaguing. Stories about his miraculous provision. Stories about his healings. Even how he raised people from the dead. By his mere word. And uh, with these unusual stories about Jesus circulating, he was drawing the attention of the very important people in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're the religious leaders at the time. And they saw him as a rival to their place of influence. A rival, a threat. A threat to be eliminated, ultimately. And they made themselves his enemies. They made themselves the enemies of Jesus. They plotted how to get rid of him. They sought to, uh, one, of their, one of their strategies was to uh, try to trap him and embarrass him publicly. And so they'd ask him what they thought were these really hard trick questions. Uh, questions about the scriptures, questions about theology, questions about what they perceived to be moral dilemmas, questions with political ramifications that were all meant to get him into trouble, get him into trouble with the people, trying to tear him down, trap him, humiliate him publicly. But he would always answer their questions in the most profound ways, and then they would end up falling into their own traps as they found themselves exposed publicly. And there was one time he asked them a question. There was one time he asked them a question. He, it was about Psalm 110. It's about our psalm. It says in Matthew 22, he says this in uh, each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I'll read from Matthew 22. He asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And so their answer was good. Their first answer was good. Uh, they probably are answering from places like 2 Samuel 7. There's several places in the Old Testament where God promised David, the great King David, that, that he would establish the throne of his son in an everlasting kingdom. And so people got it into their minds that this is going to be the great the great king, the Messiah, the son of David. This is the one we're looking for. So what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God? Whose son is he? Oh, he's the son of David. David's son would be this great messianic figure that all the people of God would wait for with longing to bring about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in the world. So Jesus said to them, well, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, and then he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, this messianic figure, the son of David, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If, if David calls him Lord, how is he then his son? So if David speaks of his son, his physical descendant, many generations removed ultimately, <clears throat> but he uses this exalted honorific Lord, and really, it's a word that is most often reserved for talking about God and his being our master, our Lord. <clears throat> if David speaks of his son that way, it means he understood his son to be intrinsically greater than he is. Greater than David. David's greater son. That's a very strange concept in any culture. Uh, I don't walk around calling my children Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, ma'am. Uh, <clears throat> I don't do that. Nobody does that. It's a strange concept in any culture, especially in ancient Hebrew culture, 
where the life of your descendants was seen to be somehow like contained within yourself, right? So that the origin of their life is, is always seen to be greater. Uh, their life is derivative from yours. So how could it be greater than you? <clears throat> A great example of the significance of this very concept also has bearing on uh, another part of this psalm. It's in the strange story of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Uh, he's a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. Um, he's the, the king of Salem, uh, which is sort of short for Jerusalem. But it was before the Jews were living in Jerusalem. This is a long time. This is like the time of Abraham. And so um, Melchizedek, king of Salem, is this mysterious figure. You can read about him in Genesis 14. You can read about him in Hebrews, uh, especially chapter 7. But his name is translated king of righteousness, and his title is translated king of peace. So he's a big deal. And as well as being king of righteousness and king of peace, this mysterious figure, he also was priest of the God Most High, the actual God, Yahweh, one true God. And so in Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes to Abraham, who's the father of the faith. He's the father of Israel. He's the father of all those who believe. Melchizedek comes to Abraham and he blesses him, which is something that the greater does to the lesser, right? Um, fathers in the Old Testament, fathers throughout the scriptures, fathers bless their children, fathers bless their grandchildren. So the greater blesses the lesser. And that's what Melchizedek does to Abraham. And Abraham responds. He's like, he offers a tithe to Melchizedek, this, this priest. And that's the response of the lesser to the greater for his blessing. In fact, it's the response of someone really to God offer a tithe, a tenth of, uh, for, for Abraham, it was the, uh, the spoils of war. It's the, it's the response of someone to God or to God's mediators, God's representatives. And the writer of Hebrews makes the argument that Melchizedek's order of priesthood, the way that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, uh, his order of priesthood is greater than the Levitical order of priesthood, which is what Israel had been used to for hundreds of years, this, the, those who are descended from the tribe of Levi, Levi. <clears throat> Melchizedek's order is greater than the Levites, at least partly because the whole line of Levites, the whole line of priests, that whole order of, of priests who were descended from Levi, they came from Abraham, their father, who himself had treated Melchizedek as a superior. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, For Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor. It's that idea of uh, having your, your being derivatively from your ancestor, being contained within him somehow. Uh, Levi was still in the loins of his ancestor when Abraham paid tithes to Mel- Melchizedek, when Abraham treated Melchizedek as a superior. And so it's assumed, for the sake of this argument in Hebrews, it's assumed that Levi and the whole order of priests from Levi is not greater than his ancestor Abraham. Levi is not greater than Abraham. The son comes from the father. The descendant comes from the ancestor and is not greater than the one from whom he originates. It's sort of just this baseline assumption. So, Back to Jesus' question, how can David's son, who in a sense is in his loins, right, 
has his being originated from David. How can David's son be greater than David? How can David call his son Lord, using almost divine language? It's a fantastic question, and you should learn from Jesus to read the Bible with questions like that. And the upshot of Jesus' question was that no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They, they stopped trying to trap him. Now, now we are able to answer Jesus' question. We are able to answer his question because Jesus himself has made it clear to us. What do you think about the Christ? How does David call his son Lord? We can answer that question. David can call his descendant Lord, and he can acknowledge the superiority of his own son, his own descendant, really because of two things. Because of two things. First, it can be understood how. It's kind of, this is how it makes sense. It can be understood how the descendant is greater than the ancestor when you understand that the descendant, the Messiah, the Christ, has two natures. He has two natures. One is human, physically descended, yes, from David, from his line of the tribe of Judah. The other nature, though, is divine, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, conceived in time and space by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's how he can call his son greater. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. He's the long-expected one, born to set his people free. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. That's Jesus, because he's the God-man. He's the son of David, who is surprisingly greater than David, because he's also the son of God. Come in the flesh, King of kings, Lord of lords, and the great high priest who lives forever. This is the only good answer to the question that Jesus raises out of Psalm 110. It's the only way to make sense of the scriptures. It's the only answer that makes sense of the scriptures. And and so that's the first reason. Here's the second reason David can call him Lord. It's because he says it in the spirit. In the spirit, as Jesus said in Matthew 22. He says, David says in the spirit... And then he quotes from Psalm 110. You see, the first reason is more about kind of like solving a confusing puzzle. These things don't really make sense until you see the puzzles uh, pieces uh, fit into place, right? The first reason is more about making sense of this thing. We could do that. We can make sense of it. The second reason is about our willingness to do that, our willingness to confess, actually, Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is the one that Psalm 110 is about. That Jesus is the, the long-expected king and priest. And that's an important point, and it's one that Jesus brings out with his question. When he's talking about Psalm 110, it's important for us to consider this question. He starts off with, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Be honest. Because if you're going to say with David that he is Lord, he's truly human, and he's greater than human in his divinity, And you're going to say that he's your king, he's the one who owns you, and he rules your life. And if you're going to say with David that he's your priest, 
He's the one who represents you before God. Then you're going to have to say it with David in the spirit. You're going to have to say it in the spirit. This is what Paul says uh, about this idea. He calls attention to the importance of it. I want you to understand. You need to understand this. No one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So that was the problem. That was the real problem with Jesus' enemies in his day. It's a problem with his enemies continuing on. The real problem of Jesus' enemies, it's not just a really difficult piece of trivia that no one can answer these questions. It was a question they didn't want to answer. They refused to acknowledge Jesus as Lord even though it was obvious how great he is, that God has attested to the fact that he's Lord through the many signs and wonders that he's performed through Jesus, as Nathan read in our New Testament reading in Acts chapter 2. They refused to acknowledge him, even though it's obvious, because they did not speak in the Spirit of God like David did in the psalm. They could not admit the answer to Jesus because they'd made themselves his enemies. Because they opposed him. Because of their unwillingness to submit to him as Lord. Because the Spirit hadn't given them new hearts to do that. So if you're an enemy of Jesus, the last thing you want to admit is that Psalm 110 is God the Father saying to Jesus, sit here at my right hand. Sit here with me on my own throne over the whole universe, over all creation. Sit here with me. Come and rule with me over heaven and earth. Come and rest while I subdue your enemies under your feet. If you're an enemy of Jesus, that's the last thing you want to admit. Is that God the Father is telling that to Jesus. But there it is. And there's really no no use arguing. As it says in our text in verse 4, Yahweh, the Lord, has sworn and will not change his mind. So uh, R.C. Sproul, I haven't quoted him in a while, says, when God says something, the argument is over. So I don't often quote R.C. Sproul, but when I do, it's, it's like the drop the mic thing, right? I don't want to disconnect this and drop the mic. But that's, that's basically what ha- is happening. When God says something, the argument's over. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He has said these things to his son, Jesus, and he's dropped the mic. And the fact that the crucified and risen Lord Jesus is in heaven right now. That he is seated at God's right hand. That he is ruling over a world that is full of his enemies. He's never intimidated by them. He uses them to accomplish his purposes in the world. He cares for his people. He's preparing his people to rule with him forever. This is reality. This is the reality. God has declared it in an oracle to his son, his king. So this is not something up for debate. God's word shows no regard, no respect for alternate views. He has spoken. He has promised that Jesus would be king and priest forever. And this is the best news that you will ever hear. This is the best news that you'll ever hear. In fact, this is the most wonderful thing about this psalm. 
God the Father is speaking to God the Son incarnate, establishing his kingdom, establishing his priesthood by his word, by, by speaking it and promising it to him. God the Father speaking to God the Son, and the Holy Spirit lets us in on that conversation. That's the most amazing thing about this psalm. We are privileged to overhear God's words to Jesus. We're privileged to overhear God's promises to Jesus. The relationship that God has with his beloved son, Jesus. That relationship uh, that, that God has with Jesus, who also just happens to be one of us, a human being. That relationship is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's the heart, the heart of our salvation. God's relationship with Jesus. When God relates to Jesus, and then he reveals that relationship in passages like this, we're being told how God is relating to our representative. Jesus is our great high priest. He's our main man. And the fact that he, on our behalf, is welcome at God's right hand, sitting on his own throne. That he lives forever in God's presence to make intercession for us. That's a display of God's intentions toward humanity. That's a display of God's intentions toward you and me, toward us, to receive us into his presence, to exalt us to the highest place of honor at his side. And here's the great irony about human rebellion. The great irony about our sin, we're grasping for power by committing treason. We're looking to usurp God's rule and his authority when all along God intended to freely share his rule with us and exalt us to the highest place. You can see that because he's done it with our representative. Jesus didn't scratch and claw his way to power against the will of a reluctant God, a God who was reluctant to see humanity become great. God had created humanity for greatness in his own image. Jesus didn't invade heaven. He didn't have to take the kingdom by force. God invited him there. He welcomed him there. God made Jesus to sit down on his own throne with him. And that was the promise from before the beginning. And this is good news for his people who offer themselves freely to him on the day of his power. It's good news for us. Even though we have been rebels, and we have been grasping for power, even though we have been usurpers, the Lord Jesus forgives us. He clothes us, as it says in verse 3, in holy garments. He gives us his holy garments. He imputes his own righteousness to us in the splendor of holiness. Everything good about himself in his relationship to God, everything good there, he shares it with us, and he allows us to define our relationship with God the same way his relationship with God goes. <clears throat> Through our spiritual union with him as we trust in him. And Jesus will bring us to share in his resurrection and in his glory. He promised that in the Gospels. You don't have to make yourself his enemy. And if you really got to know him... You'd be foolish to stay his enemy. Because right now, the main enemies of Christ, they're not other people. 
They're not people like you and me. They're not even unbelievers, not really. Not the main enemies of Christ right now are not other people, but that won't always be the case. Right now, the main enemies of Christ are demonic. Sport, uh, the, the spiritual forces of darkness, Paul says in Ephesians. <clears throat> when Jesus came into the world, he never attacked another human being. When Jesus came into the world, he went about crushing the head of the serpent all the time, dealing swiftly with demons and the spiritual forces of evil. But when Jesus returns, the scriptures say, the King of kings and the Lord of lords will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In the undimmed power of the Holy Spirit, he will execute judgment among the nations, our text says. And anyone who remains his enemy will suffer his good rule. Let the enemies of Christ fear his goodness and repent now. Shortly after Jesus ascended to God's right hand in heaven, the day when the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church to empower them to proclaim the good news of his kingdom, the good news of his priesthood. Peter stood up and he preached to thousands and he quoted from Psalm 110, again as uh, Nathan read in our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 2, and he said that, uh, he said, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified like enemies would. So Peter's speaking to those who had made themselves enemies of Jesus, speaking to those who had been born enemies of God and his Christ in their sin. That's just what we are by nature. He's speaking even to the very ones who had actually clamored for Jesus' crucifixion weeks before. Humanly speaking, this sermon was unlikely to have good effect. But with the Holy Spirit, we're more than humanly speaking. Because it goes on to say, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even the mortal enemies of Jesus don't have to stay as enemies. Lay down your futile enmity. Is this what it is? It's futile. Lay it down, turn to him for mercy, celebrate his kingship with fear and trembling, celebrate his good rule with reverence and with awe, entrust yourself and entrust your judgment to him in his love and in his grace. Be baptized into the name of the triune God, and you'll come to know the joy of forgiveness and even the power of the Holy Spirit. He is seated at God's right hand. Offer yourself to him freely on the day of his power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's uh, by the power of your spirit alone that we can 
humble ourselves before your word, that we can humble ourselves before the Lord, that we can confess that Jesus is Lord, that we can receive all the blessings of that confession, that we can receive the blessings of what it means to be united to Jesus through faith, that we can rest and trust in him alone. It's by your spirit that we can do this, and so we pray for your spirit's help. We pray that you would awaken dead hearts in this room and awaken the dead hearts of our families and friends as they hear the gospel that we carry forth into the world. We pray that you would begin here with your people, that you would um, increasingly awaken our hearts to your goodness, to your good rule, to your good priesthood, the way that you represent us, Lord Jesus, so that we can know and have the full assurance of faith that where you are, there we may also be through our spiritual union with you, that we're welcome with you, even in God's own presence forever. Convince us of these things through your Holy Spirit as we consider your word. Uh, send us forth from here as those who proclaim this same word and give, give testimony and bear witness to the ways that you've convinced us that you do love us, that you've given your life for us, that you are the good king, and you're our great high priest. We pray these things in your name. Amen.